You're listening to Gypstick Between the Lines, where we have real discussions about real issues in public safety. Hello, and welcome back to our Gypstick podcast. I'm Megan Etheridge, and today we're joined by Deb Downey, who is a Missouri State Patrol widow. Thank you for joining us today, Deb. Hi, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm I'm good to be here. Thanks. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And if you will, will you kind of give us a backstory on how you met Myron? And for our listeners, Myron is actually Deb's late husband. Yes. So Myron and I met almost 30 years ago. We were teenagers and he he moved to our town uh, right as we were starting high school. So we were high school sweethearts. Aww. We dated until yeah, it was it was pretty 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 amazing. Um, we dated um, until we each went away to college, and then I went. I moved out of state. He stayed in state where we grew up in Missouri, and then I left um, to go to college. He stayed back and went got his associate's degree, and obviously applied for the Missouri Highway Patrol Academy in his early twenties. Made it in. We each had our own lives during that time. He got married and had a child and I was in the South. I was, uh, I lived in Texas actually, but we maintained a pretty solid friendship over those years. Mm-hmm. My family still lived in Missouri uh, in the town that he worked where he was assigned. And so he, it's a small town. It's a very small town. So everyone knows everybody. So he's still close to my family. And then um, his family was, uh, his aunts uh, stayed in touch with me and his grandfather and I remained good friends too. So we maintained a friendship over the years. We reconnected uh, about 10 years ago. And, and when I say reconnected, I mean, we stayed friends, but then I was actually moving back to Missouri. My mother started, her health started failing. And so I was looking for a place to live here. He had been divorced for many years. And so that just kind of rekindled the old high school sweetheart flame, I guess. He used to love to tell people that story that he was marrying his high school sweetheart. So we got married (laughs) in, yeah, he just, he was a little bit of a secret romantic. Um, So we got married in 2014 and then I moved back to Missouri. Okay. And how long had he been a trooper when you moved back and y'all got married? He joined the academy in 1998. So it had been about 16 years at that point, which was another reason that for, for us to, to get married, had it worked the other way around, I, I still would have had to move back to Missouri. His goal was to retire from the Highway Patrol, and he was on track to retire at 51. Wow, that's pretty early. Yeah, yeah, we were really looking forward to that to that early retirement, and he had plans to travel. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal experiences as a law enforcement officer wife? Sure. Some of it was a surprise. A lot of it, I, I felt like I knew what I was getting into. I come from a long line of law enforcement and, and military. Um, my grandfather was in law enforcement. My father was in the military. So, and my, my brother and his wife were also law enforcement officers. So this was something that I thought I knew what I was getting into. I had a pretty good idea, pretty general idea. I knew all about the late nights, don't call if you don't hear anything, you know, just kind of trust their training, trust their, their coworkers. So I was okay with all of those parts. When I moved back though, I happened to move back. I, I took a job in St. Louis. I had an apartment sight unseen. 
I was moving um, the weekend of the Michael Brown shooting. And so I, I landed in our apartment the day uh, before that happened or the day after that happened, I'm sorry, and kind of walked into this world of tension. I came from a world where I lived in Texas. We were very, it felt like we were very pro-law enforcement. Our, our local politicians were always supporting the police. I, I wasn't used to this environment. And I came back to uh, something that I wasn't familiar with. Myron worked in a rural area at that time. And the plan was that we would keep a farm in the rural part of Missouri where we had grown up. I would work in St. Louis. Between the two of our schedules, we would be able to work through weekends and days off. His son was still in school in a rural community. And so we were planning on making this work from a distance, which was fine because we both worked a lot of long hours. But mm -hmm. when when the Michael Brown shooting happened, since we already lived in St. Louis, we had an apartment here and, you know, without knowing exactly what he was getting into, Myron volunteered to come up in August and provide assistance in um, the, the riot control of that period. So he did that. And I don't think that, um, I think his eyes were a little bit opened as to the tensions in the community. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't see any real negative impacts from any of that. He was happy to be up here. He felt like it was a good way for him to get introduced to the city. He decided then that um, he would take a transfer and work in the city. He decided uh, to work for the Gaming Commission, which is a division of the Highway Patrol. They monitor the casinos. We have a lot of casinos in St. Louis. He right. thought this would be kind of a, a relaxing thing because mm -hmm. a lot of the casinos are really on the outskirts of St. Louis and um, they're really kind of resort kind of a resort environment. He wanted to learn more about investigating white collar crimes, and that was going to give him an opportunity to do that. He wanted to learn a lot more about administration, and um, so that was his plan. So essentially, he was trying to set himself up to go in into that retirement eventually. He was, yeah, he was trying. I do have to give him credit. He was trying to do what he had been advised by people who had retired before him, and that was to start scaling down and preparing for the next step. His hope was that the next step would be a combination of training. He wanted to train officers. He was a certified firearms instructor, but he also wanted to train in other areas um, to add to that. And then he wanted the possibility of maybe working for um, some civilian contract firms. My, my father was in intelligence in the military, and so he was already set up with some of that uh, work. And, and Myron wanted to follow, follow him in that field. What happened was the in November, again, it came back to to the Ferguson situation. He was told that he had to work the potential riot patrol in November. I think that that was the great hearing period. Um, and so everybody was on standby waiting for the the grand jury to make their decisions. And we knew it was going to be tense. And so he was actually, I guess, a did, even though he had worked in August. And that mm -hmm. was um, that was pretty intense for him. So he, he did that uh, and he put in his transfer. He, he has accepted that assignment, turned in his transfer before he came for that and had tried to transfer to a quieter area, but was assigned to the only casino in downtown St. Louis. So he didn't yet know what he was getting into with that. But I think he got a little bit of a taste of that when he did work those November riots. He was gone for, I think I remember it was 
three days that he was there, anyone who saw the news footage from 2014 will remember that it was it was a hotbed. It was it was very intense. I did not ever hear from him about what really happened. That was one of those one of those parts of his career that he didn't talk about. But I remember very clearly I was anxious all night. There had been some troopers that had gone missing. There were fires breaking out. One of the troopers that had gone missing, I I was confident that it wasn't him because I hadn't heard anything from from someone, but I knew it was somebody from his troop. Mm-hmm. So I was very anxious about that. I later learned it was actually the, someone not only from his troop, but from his zone. So, wow. yeah, so it was very close to home for all of us. He now, ended up okay. did he used to share with you about his career? He would share things with discretion. Mm-hmm. He would leave out the graphic details. I think most officers do that. Right. He would come home and talk about um, a, a water rescue that he had made. Um, and of course, I would know he had because he'd be soaked. Or if he got called in the middle of the night to come to a, a critical uh, incident. In rural Missouri, critical incidences do not always equate to what they do in your urban areas. Mm-hmm. In rural Missouri, it is a lot of um, maybe multi-car crashes. It's um, there's the our rural sheriff's departments tend to be very small, so it's often backing them up in something that they're responding to. And there was a lot of camaraderie there between the local police departments and the state police departments. A lot of his friends were from county and local um, city units. In St. Louis, critical incidences tend to be a lot more specific to your division, I think, because there are enough agencies here to handle most traffic. So here it usually is an officer involved shooting or something more drastic. So he would share some of those when we lived in the rural areas. When we got to the city, he quit sharing a lot of details. So with that riot where you knew one of the officers that was missing and it was so close to home, did it affect him? Did he lose sleep? Did anything like that happen? When he came home the morning after when they released them and he came home, there was a big difference. There was a big shift in in everything about him. I knew he was tired, of course. That day, I just I mean, I thought, okay, he was tired. He's been through a lot. This was a this was a whole a whole lot for our entire community. And I, you know, let him take a shower. He had tear gas on him, so I couldn't even give him a hug. And I know that that impacted him too, just that whole feeling. But he, but we dealt with that. And again, I'm a military child. So I'm, you know, I kind of know that there's this decompression point that needs to happen. I'm used to the military giving our soldiers decompression. They send them off for a few weeks to do that before they come home. But I knew he would need to do all of that. So I let him take a shower and I went to work and let him have the day to himself. But when I got home that evening, he was still, he was very anxious and he was, he was just not himself. He wasn't real talkative about any of it. When I would ask him questions, he would just be very short and just was very clear that he did not want to to talk about this. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in what would become a pattern of him shutting down and just kind of pulling inward. And I hadn't seen that in all of the years that I'd known him. I'd, I'd never really seen that about him before. 
And will you tell us a little bit more about that pattern? Will you go a little bit further into the years? Sure. So shortly after that, he made the transfer to St. Louis, um, started working in the downtown casino. He made a lot of friends. He really enjoyed the people that he worked with. But the work itself turned out to be completely opposite of what he was looking for. The um, downtown St. Louis is just a very active place. It's just very, very active. And um, the casino he ended up working in wasn't the resort style that he had heard about. It was really a lot of young people and a lot of young people who um, there's, you know, the the drinking um, was very uh, heavy. And I know he responded to a lot of drug incidences. I think within a week of working there, he was working a murder in the hotel. So he stayed so busy. Oh, it was just it was crazy. And it was chaos. And some of the stories were almost humorous because of just how, you know, you get people in that environment and some of the ridiculous things people do. But sometimes it was it was just very intense for him. He did like that he he felt like he was on a on a good team and he and he really liked that element. But there was a lot of physical altercations in this in this place. So over time, um, in the next year, an officer from where I'm from, uh, the part of Houston that I had lived in, had been shot uh, at a gas station. And it was a very targeted shooting and it really shook the law enforcement community. I um, made the trip to Houston to support the agency and the family. And there were some people who put together uh, a big walk to just show our support for the law enforcement community. In the time that I was gone, something had happened at work and Myron had a very bad day and um, had gotten into a, a physical fight that he had told himself ended with the, the subject in custody having been killed. That wasn't mm-hmm. true. The subject in custody was fine. But for some reason, Myron woke up in the middle of the night believing that he had killed this man and he had a complete mental breakdown. Hmm. I was in Texas and I couldn't help him. And he would call me and he would just keep telling me this. So I called his coworker and asked why they hadn't called me to tell me this. And his coworker said that that isn't what happened. We didn't know what was happening. So his coworker went to be with him until I could get home. I was actually on my way home that day. And we didn't understand what it, what was going on. We didn't understand why his brain continued to tell him that, that something else had happened. Right. We ended up, uh, you know, he, he wouldn't tell his sergeant that, that this had happened. He was very scared of it. He recognized it was the beginning markers of having a mental, have the, the mental impacts of his job. Which and, that's normal for a law enforcement officer to be scared yeah. to admit because he's scared that his badge will be taken away. His gun will be taken away. That was exactly right. And remember, he was so close to retirement. He was going to mm-hmm. retire at 50. And at this point, he's only maybe 40. So um, he's so close and he just keeps telling himself, if I can just pull through this, I can take a transfer to something quieter. I just got to get through this. There was also a loyalty because he connected so quickly with the men he worked with in that casino. He felt a loyalty that he Mm -hmm. couldn't leave them now because it was such a dangerous area. They're still a strong unit. They still have been my friends over the years. He did not want to leave them, but he was getting to a point in his career where he was not able to slow down and Mm -hmm. I think his brain needed that slowdown. You know, on the road, I would remind him that on the road, you meet so many different people. You meet people who 
they they do backtalk you and they do disrespect you because you're a law enforcement officer. But then the next time that you're you're meeting someone, it's because their their tires flat and you're helping them fix their car and they're giving you hugs and saying thank you and you're getting a, a little bit of a mix of both. And and for him, um, his love language is was uh, words of affirmation. And so for him, the positive words would balance the negative. But in those casinos, he didn't get positive because he mm-hmm. only encountered the negative. That's what he was called to do was just to to deal with the negative. So this began a, a little bit of a pattern where he would shut down. And so instead of talking about it, he would drink. The drinking had had existed under the surface for a while, but now it became his go-to. And so he began having these bad dreams and he became so afraid of them that he started just relying on alcohol to help him clear his mind, to help him stop focusing on on what his day was like. So that was 2015. That became more and more of a pattern, not yet daily, but more and more of a pattern. He had stressful days. I think from there, so so we moved out of our apartment and we and we bought a house and so those things the, the good things were beginning to happen in our lives. His son came to live with us to go to high school. We started, I, I felt like we started taking, you know, turning a, a, a good corner right. um, and he was happy again with his friends, but he was starting to, to experience some physical ailments that he couldn't get a diagnosis for things, mm-hmm. uh, joint pain. He started breaking out in rashes. Um, and at the time it, it, we couldn't figure out what was going on. So that was stressing him. He was, it was painful for him to start getting out of bed. He started taking steroid shots. They would help for short a short time, but they wouldn't fix the problems. And then he became nervous because he wasn't able to draw his gun quickly. Again, his job was so physical because of the nature of the environment that he became afraid he wasn't going to be able to fight anymore. At that time, you know, in hindsight, now I, I have an answer as to what was happening. But at that time, we didn't know what was happening. And again, the drinking became heavier and heavier. And now he started having more vivid dreams. But we're still working opposite shifts. So I'm not seeing a lot of the detail regularly. And I think he was able to mask the stress more than he would have been able to had we worked the same shift. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to 2018. It was his birthday. He was with his son shopping. And he had a uh, grand mal seizure in the shopping, in, in the, the, sh- the shopping center. And he did not fall, thankfully. Um, his son caught him. Um, That's good. Yeah, yeah. So there was no brain injury that had happened then. But he did have to ride in an ambulance to the local hospital. And because he was a state trooper and he is required to drive for his job, he was put on medical leave for six months. MRIs were run. We had all kinds of brain activity tests run. There was no diagnosis for his seizure. Upon doing research, what I learned was the combination of the seizure, the joint pain, the, uh, he ended up being diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis right after that. His cortisol levels were so high that it was causing him, he, he was, they had diagnosed him with um, a condition called POTS where his I think sitting or standing too quickly can make him pass out, but he didn't have that symptom. It, it, it was like he wasn't symptomatic of the thing that they were diagnosing him with. And then we later learned that this was pretty common among people who have 
very high cortisol levels. They have very high adrenaline levels. Their endorphins are always very high. The body begins to physically respond in these ways. And I've actually met law enforcement officers since then who have had these exact same conditions. So in hindsight, we realized it was the impact of his stress level and not being able to come down. Now, he was drinking to deal with that stress level instead of talking about it, instead of doing some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, he was drinking, which was only increasing the stress level for his brain. The, you know, the function of the brain, I, I've had to study all of this since he got sick because I've tried to, be, to figure out how to help him. And, you know, the function of the brain is the brain needs to rest to process trauma. And when you're, when you're drunk, your brain isn't resting, your brain is intoxicated. So he was doing the total opposite thing of what was going to help him. He was doing the temporary solution that he thought would work. And he became mm -hmm. an alcoholic as a result. So the, so the January seizure shuts him down and they tell him he can't work for six months. Which I know um, is hard for him because like you've said, his job is so important to him. His job was his identity. His job was such an identity his phone, the contacts in his phone, I don't know who's who as I'm going through his phone today because they're all numbers. Identified everyone with badge numbers. Wow. Yeah, he was a cop through and through. And we were a cop's family. And we we were, you know, just black and blue all the way through. And this was now his identity. When he was in the hospital, I, I rushed to the hospital and he's he's hooked up to, to monitors and machines. And coming out of a seizure, your brain still doesn't know what just happened. He would pop out of uh, kind of a, he, he would be, I guess, almost asleep. He would, be, he would be unconscious for a while. And then he would pop up and he would open his eyes and he would say, where am I? And we would say, you're in the county hospital. What happened? You had a seizure. Well, that's a career ender. And then he'd close his eyes. And then three or four minutes later, he'd pop open again. Where am I? You're in the county hospital. What happened? You had a seizure. Well, that's a career ender. And we went through this for two hours, just yeah. continuing the exact same conversation. Which is difficult on y'all because you're worried about him, not the career right now. Precisely. Precisely. It would have been nice had he said something like, are you guys okay? Right. Um, because we weren't in our we weren't in our local town. So by telling him which hospital we were in, you know, he didn't register that you were on the road with your son. Like you could have been driving when this happened. Right. He didn't ask if we were OK. He didn't ask if he was OK. He just instantly. Well, that's a career ender. And I was beginning to understand that, you know, I would tease him that his career was always the most important thing and that the, the highway patrol was his wife and I was just his mistress. But now <laughs> it was really starting to hit me. His friends, when I would call his colleagues that night and tell them what happened, they knew him so well that even they said, oh, this won't be good for him. They're not mm -hmm. going to let him back in that car. This won't be good for him. But I thought, well, maybe this will be his wake up call. Maybe he'll realize how, you know, how hard, how much he's been drinking because he's going to be in the hospital for a few days. Maybe he'll realize how stressed he is. Maybe now he will see it's time to start winding down. And instead, it was just like he hit a brick wall and we weren't a part of, we weren't a part of that journey with him anymore. He disconnected from us almost instantly. He got very mad. He got very withdrawn. And he just, I know he, he went through a depression and we were trying to give him the space to go through that. I can imagine how depressing it was. But I still was thinking this is only six months. 
this is only six months. You just have to not have a seizure for six more months. And if it was a one-time thing, you're going to come back to work. I had heard a lot of stories of people who had experienced that. So we go into the spring and instead of focusing on trying to figure out why he had had the seizure, trying to figure out what had happened and how we can do better, he started drinking just that much more. Now he didn't have a reason to not be drunk. He didn't have a reason to, he didn't have anything the next day to look forward to. So he just woke up and he would start drinking. Did you notice that affecting his son? Because I know it affected you. His son, you know, already he's a teenager. And so he's already going through high school stuff. Now to his credit, his son was really starting to fit in with his new high school. It was a bigger school. He had more opportunities to to join activities. And so he would stay away from home as much as as he could with he would he would join teams at school. He would be in school plays and he stayed very busy with that. But on the weekends, it was hard for him to connect with his dad. And so he would stay in his room a lot. You know, he was really at risk for depression, too. He would get very frustrated with his dad and he would just, you know, he's a he's a he's a straight shooter. And he would just tell his dad, you know, dude, you just need to relax. You 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 wanted some time off anyway. You had already been saying you were too stressed. So take your time off and enjoy your time off. I think his son was really hoping that he would take that time to spend with us and enjoy us for a while, just like I had hoped. And he didn't. So time goes on and now we are in May. And by now I'm, I'm now we're more on the same schedule and I'm, and I'm, you know, sleeping next to him more. Um, And so I'm hearing the bad dreams more and they're vivid. They're very, very vivid. He's reliving incidences that I knew had happened in his career. You know, during his career, he had lost a lot of coworkers. He had lost some to um, to gun violence. He had lost some to car accidents. And I knew that it always haunted him. I also had known in general what the big stories of his career were. Every officer has those big stories that, that scar them, that the cases that don't leave. And I knew those stories in general, but now I was hearing those stories in graphic detail while he was sleeping. So I didn't know how to approach it. And I didn't, I didn't want to bring something to his attention that he wasn't ready to deal with. So it may comes and now, now he's realized how bad his drinking has gotten. And he's commenting about how he does wish he could stop drinking, but he doesn't know how. Hmm. I took so that as my cue. Right. He was in, indirectly asking for help. Yep. And so I took that as my cue. And I was, I got the courage. It, I, I don't know if it was courage or if it just spilled out. But I had said to him, what if we were to deal with the reason that you drink instead of just focusing on the drinking? And he said, well, why do you think I drink? And, it, and I just said, have you considered you could have PTSD? And he stopped cold. Uh, I thought I had maybe offended him. I was, it was, you know, one of those moments I, you know, keeping in mind, I've grown up with this person. I've known him since we were young kids. His reaction wasn't what I'd expected. Um, he didn't blow me off, nor did he, he didn't respond at all. Uh, I felt like he, he was kind of just frozen in place. And he just mm-hmm. said, can you just give me a few minutes to sit with that? And so I left him alone. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I, I really had thought maybe I had triggered something bad. So he took about maybe about 20 minutes and then came and found me, you know, we have a, we have a good sized property with 
outbuildings and shops and things. And so he came and found me in the house from the shop that he was in. And he said, why do you think I have PTSD? And so I described to him what happens in his sleep. And he said, yeah, I, I hadn't ever really thought I had PTSD until you said it. And now I, I do think that there's something wrong. So I asked him if he would get help. And he said, only if it's not on my insurance and my agency doesn't know, which I think is typical too. It is definitely. So I started reaching out. I started finding some nonprofits and reaching out. One thing that he used to say to me repeatedly is, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. And I knew that he was, I knew he he was on the verge of becoming a danger to himself. I didn't at the time think he was suicidal, but I thought he's definitely at risk of hurting himself. After the PTSD conversation, though, I did start to realize, you know, he was taking his gun to his shop with him. I started noticing that behavior. He was just taking it to the shop with him every night that he would go. And that was frightening. He was starting to get more short tempered. He was starting to snap at us and yell at us. And he had never Mm -hmm. been that person. He was a very gentle, gentle person. So I finally got a response from a nonprofit that I had reached out to and they said, is he suicidal? Well, I knew better than to answer that question. I don't know who they are. And I had to give them his name to get him into a program. And I, and so I just told them, well, he keeps repeating that he's tired. And immediately within minutes, I had an email that said, you need to get him on a plane. You need to get him to our facility. We have a week long treatment. Um, And if you can come with him, that would be even better. And we can get you in next week. And it was just by, yeah, and it was by, it was just by the grace of God that that had happened because they were actually had, they only do this program every three months and they were full, but Mm -hmm. just the day before I reached out to them, somebody wasn't able to make it to the program. So Myron took their spot. It was a program that was developed for veterans, but that particular, again, by the grace of God, that particular week, they were doing a pilot um, with law enforcement officers so that they wow. could apply for a grant. And it was completely anonymous. I mean, they knew who he was, but they had to verify that he actually was a law enforcement officer, but they didn't ask for any insurance information or payment, That's which amazing. made Myron feel, yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was absolutely where we needed to be when we needed to be there. And, um, and Myron felt comfortable when I told them they didn't even ask for your health insurance. You know, they just needed to verify you really are a law enforcement officer so that they could get you into the program. So we got on a plane and we flew out to Utah and it was a great week. It was hard, but I felt as though we were now in this together. I was able to connect with other spouses who were experiencing what I was experiencing. He got daily one-on-one psychiatric care from someone that he respected and trusted. And we went through cognitive behavioral therapy. Myron started feeling like he was actually normal. He was, this, this treatment told him, look, you are a compassionate person. That is why you became a law enforcement officer and you care about the people that you serve. And when you see them struggle and you see the bad things that happen, you take it home with you because you You want to help. You care. Exactly. This is a battle wound that you have. And this is not because you're abnormal. This is because you're normal. Mm Mm-hmm. Where you're not doing the correct things is you're not processing the trauma. You're not talking about the trauma. You're letting it build up. And his, his psychiatrist compared it to a closet. 
if you keep your closet organized, you can keep a lot of stuff in there and you can find it easily. And when you need it, you can get it out. And when you need to put it away, you know where it's going. But if you just cram stuff into the closet, you you start just throwing things in there when finally you can't close the door and it starts pouring out. So he taught him how to refile the trauma without having to relive the trauma. And then he taught us about what ifs and the danger of what ifs. Well, when this car accident happened, what if I'd have been there five minutes earlier? Well, you weren't and you couldn't have been and you couldn't have known that that was going to happen. Which that's huge too. And not only in law enforcement, but in public safety in general, that what if is a constant question that's asked. It's a backbone, a backbone to post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a, a, a necessary ingredient. You know, it is to post-traumatic stress disorder what sugar is to confectionaries. You know, it, it isn't always the cause, but it is that common ingredient that most of them have. I could have done something different. I could have changed the outcome. And that starts going through their brain. I learned from this psychiatrist that in the studies he had done, the veterans and law enforcement officers who accepted the situation and said, I couldn't have changed it. I mean, they still go through the, the, the post-stress processing, but they tend to process it more realistically. Like this was an unfortunate thing that had happened. I was a part of something very traumatic. It hurt me. I couldn't have changed the outcome though. And they tend to process it and be able to accept that it was a part of their story. Whereas the men and women who develop PTSD they keep going back to it in their head saying, I should have been the hero. And it, and it eats at them and it becomes their ghost and haunts them and they live in it and they get stuck. And that's what they call the stuck point. They get stuck and they, they start working in it as if they are at fault. And Myron lived in that very much. He would live through critical incidences, uh, particularly the ones that involved his coworkers and said, yeah, but what if I would have stopped the car before it hit my coworker? What if I could have stopped the guy who shot my coworker? What if I would have pulled him over the day before for his license plate being expired? Things that maybe the common civilian would say, well, that's just crazy. <laughs> you, you couldn't have known any of that. Right. But people who live in that trauma and who live to serve see that as, well, that was my job and I wasn't able to do it. So that was June of 2018. The, the takeaway from it, his psychiatrist had said, you have to stop drinking. And now the drinking had become the mistress. The job wasn't a part of our lives now, but the drinking had become the mistress. He still had the goal of going back to work, but he was drinking a 30 pack a day. And a lot of people want me to always repeat that. What did you say? 30, right. three, zero a day. That's what he was drinking. So he knew he couldn't go back to work drinking like that but he also knew he didn't know how to stop. He had tried to go to a group that is designed to help alcoholics, but he didn't feel comfortable. He would walk in the door. And he, I think the most meetings he'd ever gone to in one place was, was two at a time. I think he tried it four times, four different locations. Two of them he tried twice, but every time what ended up happening is somebody was there and they were court ordered and they would hand over their court documents and now he didn't feel safe. And he didn't mm. feel like he was giving that person a safe space either to deal with their own alcoholism. So he quit going and he said, I don't fit in. And I bet this program's great. I've heard of people saying that it can help. It can't help me. And he didn't want to go to inpatient because again, remember he didn't want it on his health insurance. He's on sick leave during this time. He had a year and a half of sick leave built up. So he was still covered fully under highway patrol insurance and he was still considered an employee of the highway patrol he didn't get a lot of 
aftercare from the highway patrol though. And I don't know the protocols. I have not asked what the normal human resource process is, but I know for us, we didn't get visits outside of our friends and it should not have been the responsibility of our friends. I feel very strongly about that. Even if his friends were his sergeants, they were so close to the situation. It should not have been their responsibility to be doing wellness checks on him. They were checking Mm -hmm. on him because they were our friends and we were still going to dinners with them and we were still going to their houses and playing games and things. But there was never anybody outside of our circle of friends that was checking on us. He would get a phone call once in a while that would just give him an update on his sick leave. So we go through and July comes. And by now they're beginning to tell him, okay, you haven't had a seizure in this long. You know, we're we're looking at bringing you back to work. We just need a doctor to clear you. And no doctor will clear him because he's drinking a 30 pack a day. And he's just not in a condition to be working. So he's dealing with the PTSD and he felt much better about that. And he went through this honeymoon phase when we got, when we got out of that therapy, he felt like he was ready to take on the world, but not ready to give up the drinking just yet. As a result, by the time July came, he crashed and he had a suicide attempt. It just happened to be that our dog walked in on him, right? As he was, he had written his note. He had his badge around his neck. He had his duty weapon in his hand. He had walked out the back door. And our dog ran outside. It was late at night. Our dog ran outside because he had to go to the bathroom. And that kind of jolted him out of this, you know, he was in the midst of walking into the woods. So the next day, he asked me to please hospitalize him. He wanted to go on a mental health hold. So I started to get him into the car. I said, okay, let's, and he was very drunk. He was very drunk. He had lined up all of the beer cans so that we could see them. We hadn't yet told his son that we were dealing with PTSD and suicide attempts, but the alcoholism could not have been hidden. That was just so obvious. That part couldn't have been hidden. So he called me on my way home from work and said, take me to the hospital tonight. I'm, I don't want to die. I want to, I want help. I was a little relieved. And so I, I came home and I said, and he said, no, I want you to call the County. I want you to call a deputy to come out and take me. I couldn't understand why. And afterward, he couldn't understand why either. He really thought I had just volunteered to call the deputy. Um, But he wanted that. And I think that subconsciously, he recognized that if a deputy came and responded to a suicide attempt, that he would be involuntarily put in. Right. So he wouldn't be. And as an officer, that's where his mind went. Yep. So he some level of understood the difference between checking himself in and being checked in. I told him, we need to tell your son. You know, um, we need to tell him, uh, I can't lie to him about why you went to the hospital. It was easy when we went to this week in Utah because it was summer vacation. We just happened to take him to his mom's for the week, but we can't hide this any longer because now you're talking about suicide. So we called his son downstairs and I think that conversation was the, the game changer for him. He had to tell his son, Hey, I tried to kill myself last night. I'm putting myself in the hospital. I'm going to go on a mental health hold and I'm going to get help and I'm going to try to quit drinking. And we're going to deal with all of this. It was a lot of tears. So I, the, the officers came and this part still makes me cry. So I called the county and I said, my husband is a state trooper. He has tried to kill himself. He's very drunk right now. And he wants a police escort for a mental health hold. And I did not call 911. I just called the direct line. And the, the dispatcher had said, let me have my boss call you on a private line. Obviously, the conversations are recorded. Um, her boss called me on a private line. 
and asked for his name and said, is he armed right now? I said, I don't think so. He, he laid out all of the weapons that he normally wears. He laid them all out on the table and he's outside right now. And he, and he has told us he won't come in the house until you come, but he's very drunk. So I don't know what you're coming into. So two officers showed up. Myron was very respectful, stood up, did the whole process, put his hands on his head, said, go ahead and, and, you know, pat me down. And he was so, so drunk. And, uh, and he was in tears, but he, when he saw them, he said, I'm, I'm glad you're here. And they said, we will let your wife take you. Do you want her to take you? He said, nope. He said, I, I want, I want to go with you. And they said, well, that means we have, I know. So they, they cuffed him and we watched him taken away in handcuffs and it was really hard. So, but I felt like, okay, he needs to experience this. This is, this is his choice and this is what he wants. And he was clear with them. This is what I want. They get to the hospital and of course they call his, his uh, command staff, but not until they could get his blood alcohol content down. And by the time his boss got there, I know that his medical records show that he was at 0.38 when they took him. Mm. He was at 0.30 when his boss got there. So the next morning I get a phone call at 6 a.m. Hey, we have to come get his, his gear. Um, we've got to come get his, his duty weapon. We've got to come get whatever he's got. And I said, I understand. So they came and I put his car keys out. They came to get his car. They came to get his, uh, or they might've taken his car before that, but they, they came to get his, his duty weapons. I had them all lined out, you know, taking inventory. And I had never met these two people. He had just taken that transfer. He had dreamed of right. Like a week before he had fallen out with his seizure. He had just taken that transfer to that slower location where he was going to start gearing up for retirement. So I didn't know these people. So two men show up and I think it was maybe a lieutenant and a, and a sergeant. I'm not really sure. Um, but they don't know me and they don't know our story and they haven't been involved for the last few months like everyone else had been. And they didn't even know him. So they came into my house and they sat at my table and they said, all right, well, they're going to coach me now. They said, well, you know, we, we saw him and he's in bad shape and we want to know what's going on. And I said, he's very stressed. I said, he's, he's on the verge of losing his job. That, you know, particular week, one thing that had happened is one of the uh, higher ups with the highway patrol had published a book about Ferguson and the rumors, we didn't read it, but the rumors were that it, it wasn't the same story that the boys had experienced. I say the boys, because that was the people in our crew, right. um, the, um, so it, within our own group, people were angry about it. And I'm sure that that led to a lot of what was happening that week. And I said, he feels like he's been sold out. You know, he, he wanted to talk to a, a chaplain about what had happened in Ferguson. And when he, when the whole group had tried to talk to a chaplain, they brought in HR people. And so I, I said, you know, you guys, I, I don't know how you normally handle these things, but he doesn't feel like it was handled in a way that was delicate. And he's very stressed. I said, he has PTSD. We just came back from a, an intense CBT facility and he's very, you know, I said, he's been hiding it from you, but this is what's going on. And one of the men at the table said, well, I, I don't know. He said, I, I, I deal with the same stress. I, I'm a trooper as well, but I, I leave it at the door. He said, what I have found mm -hmm. is when people experience this, there's normally family problems. And so we need you to tell us what's going on here in this family. And I was mad. I got very angry because I was the only one in the room who had been walking through with this with Myron and, and also trying to help and trying to help. And Myron was very clear with me and his son that when he would have bad days, he would be very clear. This is not about you guys. I love you guys. I love you. You're my world, but this is not about you. 
This is about me. And that's why I'm not sharing it with you because you shouldn't have to share it with me, which we felt opposite. We're a team, we're a family, we share things. So I was very mad. And I said, look, listen, I said, I, you need to know something about me. I said, my father served you know, five tours of duty in the Air Force. I, I gave him up for 15 years. He wasn't a part of my childhood because he was stationed overseas so much. I said, my, my brother served in the military. I had a husband that served in the military. My grandfather was a law enforcement officer. My stepdad was a law enforcement officer. My mom was a corrections officer. You're talking to the wrong person. I said, if there's anybody here who knows how to deal with this, it's me. This is what I've been trained for. This is what my whole life has been about. I said, and I want to tell you, you may carry the gun and you may have the tactical training, but I'm the toughest SOB in this room because when you are gone. I know people love that part of that story. Right. As a matter of fact, afterwards, Myron said, did you really say that? I'm like, oh, you bet I did. <laughs> um, I'm only five foot two. And so I'm sitting here pointing my fingers at these people and I'm exhausted. It's been a long 24 hours. I said, when you guys are in the middle of a shootout and you're hiding behind the quarter panel of your car, or you are responding to a domestic violence incident where there are, there's gunfires blazing and you're dodging bullets. You know where you are. You know if you're safe. You know if you've been hit by, some, by something. You know who's hurt. You know who's not. You know if you're coming home. We don't. I said, as a family, we sit here and we hear, you know, it used to be the scanner when I was growing up. And then later it became social media. We hear the news stories. People are calling us, civilians who don't know how to how to just trust the process, right? They call us and they say, hey, I heard that there's gunshots and I know Myron's on duty has even shot and maybe it's the first time I've heard about it. And I still have to sit here and I still have to make dinner and I still have to give a kid a bath and put a kid to bed and make sure homework's done and pretend nothing's happening and just trust that if my guy's involved, I'm going to get a phone call. You know if you're safe. We don't. And we just sit here and trust the process. And growing up military, I had to deal with the three-day blackout where nobody's allowed to call. If I don't hear from anybody in three days, I know something bad's happened. And I'm just waiting for the knock at the door to tell me if it was my guy. And yet you're sitting here telling me that you're going to teach me how to keep my place for my officer. Get the hell out of here. Like, don't even give me this. Um, I said, you failed my husband. You didn't check on him the whole time that he was sick. And you know what? In, in hindsight, it might have been because he was with a new unit. They didn't think about checking on him. They weren't used to him being a part of them. I said, but you didn't check on him. You didn't come by here. You didn't know what was going on. This is all news to you, but it's been old news for me. I've been dealing with it for six months and I haven't had a single bit of help from you. So just take his stuff and get out of my house. And I was so mad. I was so mad. I didn't, you know, I felt like there could have been some support. What can we do? I wasn't asked, well, what could we do? I was asked, what did you do? So I made my decision at that point, whether Myron stayed with the patrol, whether he moved on, whether they let him come back, didn't matter. I was taking matters in my own hands and I was getting help for my husband. And that was that. So, um, and I wasn't going to listen to him anymore. I mean, this was now exposed. Everybody knew what was going on now because now the highway patrol is involved. I wasn't going to hide anymore. So he stayed in the hospital for three days. And when I went to pick him up, there was a decision point and I watched him make it. He got in the car and he was hungry and I was really hoping he'd just say, let's go home. Our favorite restaurant happens to be a bar and grill. And he was saying, I'm hungry. And I said, okay, well, I've got some dinner at home. 
Now, mind you, in this time period, I've had somebody come and get, he had over 60 guns because he was a gunsmith. So he would, he was a collector. He was a gunsmith. He had, you know, he would work on people's guns. I had somebody come and get all of the guns. We had cleaned out all of the alcohol from the house. Even my wine collection had to go. We had made, you know, a lot of safety precautions at home, which we had to do for him to come home, but we did it anyway. Even if, even if somebody wouldn't have told us we had to do it, we did it anyway. So I knew home was safe. And I said, look, I've got dinner at home. We can go home. And he goes, I don't know. I might want to eat out. And, he, and I watched him consciously make a decision. He goes, no, let's go home. Just stop and get me a soda and then let's go home. And so we got home and he said, you know, in the car, my first inkling was I want a beer. And he said, I'm not going to do that. I had already lined up therapy for him with a therapist that was local. I lined up a psychiatrist for him and um, I got him into an online recovery program where he could be completely anonymous and I registered him for that. So all of this was waiting for him at home. And I said, okay. And so when we got home, I told him the plan. He began therapy. He began going to see the psychiatrist. He began working the um, recovery program. A month later, a colleague, of his from our hometown, got drunk one night and shot himself in his living room. All of the officers that were in our circle called and said, how's Myron? We're very worried about him. I was really worried that that would cause him a relapse. So Myron went to that funeral and he said, you know, I, I sit here and I think about how many times I've almost killed myself and I'm watching right. this person's family and how much they're struggling. And I don't want that for my family and I choose recovery. So he went to a, a, a men's retreat and he had another seizure. He was confronted by someone about his PTSD and they got into a massive argument. And in the middle of the argument, he fell and had a seizure. Again, stress, stress induced. So he was told, you can't come back to work. You had a second seizure and you can't come back to work when we don't think it's a good idea. But he had accepted by then, okay, it's not a good idea. So that was August and he worked on his sobriety and we had a really great, we had a really great period of sobriety. He was plugged back into the family. He was becoming certified. That dream of becoming an instructor was coming true now. And so he, since he was still active in the patrol because he was still on sick leave, he was able to go get post-certified so that he could become an instructor for many things. And, and one of the things he wanted to do was he wanted to instruct on trauma and ways to deal with the trauma. And his, and his degree was in psychology. So this was a very comfortable place for him. He began working with the nonprofits and his goal was to one day get in front of groups, tell his story and work with officers who were struggling with PTSD and alcoholism. So April, 2019 comes and he has a, he has a relapse. He calls me and he's, and I'm at work and he says, I'm, I'm at a bar and I've relapsed. And that was a terrifying phone call. And I didn't know what to do. And I said, I'll come get you. He said, Nope, I'm just going to pass out in my car until I can drive home. And then, um, when he got home, he was very ashamed. And he said he had seen something on TV that triggered his trauma. But I later found a letter that was from his disability insurance that had said, you're officially on disability now. Hmm. So he was no longer an officer with the highway patrol. We got a separation papers. And I think that's in his mind, that was his trigger. It was the same. I don't know that he got those the same day because he hid them from me. I found them in paperwork, but the date matched up with the, with the relapse. I don't think he would have told me that that's what made him relapse because I was always reminding him that we're his family and this is a job. So he couldn't let go, I think. He 
teeter back and forth with getting back into recovery, but he chose not to. He said, I'm just going to deal with it myself. If he could deal with it himself, he wouldn't have been an alcoholic. And that was the truth. But his alcoholic brain kicked back into gear. And he began drinking at the same level that he was drinking before. July comes and now he's starting to really have a personality shift. He's really changing. And I'm seeing a little bit more aggression. We're trying to give him the space. Now, my stepson and I are working our own programs for codependency. And we're trying to learn how to let go and just let him deal with what he has to deal with, but give him the resources when he's ready to go back. Right. We, we are understanding we can't force him to, to make the choice to recover again. Absolutely. So he um, has a talk with me one day that was very disturbing, particularly in hindsight. He said, I need you to promise me that you will not let me be violent to you or my son. And I said, well, you've never been violent toward us. You're a harm to yourself. You know, this past year has been about suicide and you're a harm to yourself. And he said, just make me a promise that you will not let me hurt you. And I'm blowing the whole thing off. I've known him for almost 30 years at this point. He won't hurt us. And he yelled at me. He grabbed me by the, by the arm and he yelled at me and he said, you aren't listening to me. You need to promise me. He said, I don't want to tell you what's going on. I just need you to know that there are, I'm just having bad thoughts and I need you to promise me that you won't let me act on them. And now I was scared. And I said, okay, you don't have to act on them. I will make sure, you know, you will never hurt us. So he's always in a rage at this point. And by the time that fall had come, he's done so many crazy things that even my family who had supported him all this time, you know, being military and law enforcement, they too have dealt with alcoholism and they too have dealt with PTSD. And so they're very compassionate toward what he's going through. But now he's showing signs to them that he is mentally gone. And I look back and I, I wonder if at some point there had been, um, you know, the second seizure he had, he did hit his head and he wouldn't go get seen for that. And I had wondered, was there some brain injury that was now combined with his alcoholism or was this really the PTSD that had taken over so bad? And we'll never know now. So September comes and I just, you know, I'm a very prayerful woman where we were very active in church. And I just said a prayer, you know, I, I prayed every single day on my way to work and I prayed every single day on the way home. And one day I, I was saying a prayer and I felt God just say, just let go of this. Let go of it and trust me. And so I did, I let go. So October comes and now he's made more suicide attempts. And um, my family and I are trying to make a plan in the background on how we can push him into recovery. My dad's even kind of considering maybe we should get guardianship over him because he's so far gone. He, he was never sober. We had gotten so bad that in the morning he would wake up and he would go to his beer fridge and he would crack a beer and then he would, and I wouldn't say anything to him. He would just look at me and say, I know, but I'm going to get sick if I don't. His alcoholism was so bad that if he didn't drink a beer, as soon as he woke up, he would have the shakes and he would vomit. Wow. Um, it was just, he had just become, and you know, relapses can be so hard like that. Mm -hmm. So the suicide attempts are back. He's, he's attempting suicide again. I'm walking in on guns being, you know, in his lap. He's waking up telling me I'm going to go kill myself right now. And it was so hard just every day being worried. I'm going to come home and I'm going to find him dead being worried. I'm going to go to his shop and I'm going to find him dead. Um, he would pass out in the front yard and I would go out there. And the very first thing I would do is look around his body to see, can I see blood? And no, I can't see blood. He's just passed out. This became such a normal for me. 
that I was constantly worried that, you know, it wasn't, it was no longer a matter of, is my husband going to kill himself? It became a matter of when is my husband going to kill himself? Am I going to be the one to find him? And we began talking about it. We began talking about it in our house. We began talking about suicide. We began talking about his suicidal thoughts. That seemed to help him on the days that we talked about it were actually the days he didn't make attempts. We were really hopeful that, that these talks were going to get him into therapy. But instead, in November, my stepson and I were at home sleeping. And I woke up to hearing crashing. And there was glass breaking. And I ran outside to find him driving into our home with his Jeep. It was about 1.30 in the morning. And with all the crazy things that he had done, we had done everything we could to not, to not bring law enforcement into this. But at that moment, I had to call 911. So I was on the phone with 911 for maybe 23 minutes. Wow. Um, I think was how long the phone call was. That's how long it took for somebody to get to our house. And meanwhile, I'm trying to sneak my, I'm trying to not wake my stepson up until I know I can have a safe path out of the home. And the, re, you know, two reasons. Number one, by this time, my stepson's almost a grown man. I don't need him confronting his dad who was drunk and running into our home. Right. Um, and number two, I just don't want him to see this as it's happening. It was going to be bad enough that he was going to know the next day what had happened. But I didn't want him seeing his dad like that. I did everything I could to, to keep the focus on the way. It's, it's a pretty big house. So I could keep the focus on one end of the house. Myron was so angry and he was just... Uh, you know, at one point he's trying to smash in windows with a chair. And I, and I asked him, why are you doing this? And he just stopped and he just said, I, I don't know. And then he just started doing it again. Finally, I get to the point where I had to get my stepson out of the house because his, his rage was starting to come toward that end. So we ran out of the house and we run downstairs to the shop. We snuck out where he couldn't see us because I didn't know if this was toward us. I didn't know if this rage was just rage. I didn't know if it was I didn't know. I didn't know. Was did we trigger this? Was he just taking this out on our on our physical assets? And that was the last time I saw my husband. He was taken away, of course. He was arrested and then put in jail. The officers who responded to the call, um, one of them was one of the same officers that had responded a year before um, and took him to the hospital for his mental health hold. And he remembered. And he said, look, I've got, I've got no patience for this guy. And so um, they, in the state of Missouri, domestic violence is handled solely by the state. The new domestic violence law, domestic violence laws take the victim out of the picture. So immediately a restraining order is put on him. Immediately, this is, I, I don't, there aren't charges that I can press. The state has pressed charges now. And they pressed uh, first degree domestic assault charges, which is attempted murder essentially. And even though I, I didn't have any bruises, I had no cuts. He hadn't physically harmed me. He had hurt our house though. And the video footage showed many things that, that made the officers feel as though he was tar he would he would have targeted me had he not intentionally been doing so. It would have been happening soon. So cash only bond and he can't get out of jail. And in the midst of it, of course, he's trying to shop for a new attorney. He doesn't want the public defender. Understandably, I'm not right. I'm I'm holding the line with the restraining order because already we've been trying to get him into into rehab. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the bottom line. Like this is rock bottom now. We right. thought this is rock bottom. So he waves his his preliminary hearing so that he can get a new attorney. And then in that time period, COVID happened. And now no hearings are happening. And now he's in jail for far longer than any of us had ever anticipated or wanted for him. And to back up, I didn't want him in jail. 
I was saying from the very beginning, I want him in a mental hospital, but it's out of my hands. A lot of people who were not involved in the story actively, but who came in later cannot understand that even to this day, they kind of feel like I could have gone and got him out of jail. And I guess I could have, I guess I could have put up the cash only bond, which was $50,000 spent our money that I needed to, you know, build, rebuild our lives with now, because I I had that much damage done to my home. It was, it came up to $50,000 of the damage and violated our own safety. But I didn't, I kept remembering what Myron had said just that summer before. If I ever hurt you guys, you know, hold me accountable. Don't let me hurt you. So he obviously had been knowing that he was having thoughts that could lead to these, these violent acts. Right. And I needed to trust him as somebody who had known him since, you know, for almost his entire life. I knew I needed to trust him. He had tried to give me a warning and now it happened. I took the position, not, I took myself out of the entire equation and I took the position of, I need to protect my husband's son. And so that was my focus. And I'm grateful eternally for my stepson because I am so codependent that I don't know if I would have taken the steps I needed to protect us. Um, Myron violated the restraining order at one point and came back violently sober. He was sober and he came back violently to our house. We had removed again, all the guns and he had gone to um, one of his hiding places for his gun. And so we do think he was coming back to maybe get his gun to kill himself. But who knows mm-hmm. what could have happened in the process because he was so Absolutely. mentally ill at that point. Right. So we were afraid. So the next summer, July of 2020, he has his hearing and the judge puts a permanent restraining order on him. I did not make a statement in his case. I just cannot bring myself to testify against my husband. And I wanted him to go to recovery anyway. But I had talked to both his attorney and the and the prosecuting attorney. And I had told both of them, I don't want a divorce. I want recovery. I want rehab. And I want to come back to this judge in a year or two years or whatever it takes and say, look, he's made a complete turnaround. He's turned his life around. He's going to use this story to help other people. I want him to come home. That was my plan. But that was not the plan that Myron had. Myron used to always tell me there would be a death before there's a divorce. And I believed him. And I reminded his attorney of that. Um, but his attorney had said, well, he, he wants a divorce. And he has signed power of attorney over to this person that was a distant family friend, not even a part of our story during the time that he was six. So this person had no idea what was going on in our home, took compassion for him, totally believed that I had made up the story of um, (laughs) him running into the house. Yeah, there's video footage and everything. But you know, a codependent will do what a codependent needs to do to, uh, to, to believe the alcoholic. This person allowed him to continue drinking. And as a result, in September, Myron traveled to New York, and he had he had pushed me to the point where I had to file for a divorce. And the reason that I say I had to is he began signing over our bank accounts to people who were not a part of our family. And people were beginning to try to draw money. I know that they had drained some some of his he could have you know told them to, but they began draining parts of his retirement accounts. And so I went to see an attorney and I said, what can I do? And they said, you need to file for divorce. Whether you go through with it or not doesn't matter. You will freeze these assets. Um, so that's what I did. And Myron kept telling people that that's what he wanted, but I kept telling them, I don't believe him. I don't think it is what he wants. I think he wants an excuse to finally die. I -hmm. know Myron, he's suicidal. And I think he wants an excuse to finally die. He's lost his job, which was his everything. And now he's taken actions to lose his family, which he didn't realize was as important as they are. He didn't know how much he was going to miss his family until he lost them. So he can't come home. He can't have anything. I won't let anything leave the house except his clothes. 
so I filed for divorce and I put a freeze on those accounts, um, put a restraining order on them so that nobody could touch them. Myron held on to the papers as long as he could. And then he finally signed them. And three days later, he was in New York, very drunk. He was supposed to be working with a crew, I think a welding crew. And he didn't show up to work that day. Instead, he walked down to, he was in Niagara Falls. He walked down to the falls. He climbed over the safety fences, took his boots off, took his wallet out, put them in his boots, put his hotel key in his boots, put his hat on top of his boots. There were witnesses that said he just kind of grinned at the crowd, jumped over the edge of the bridge and swam to the edge of Niagara Falls. That was um, September 29th of 2020. The investigators, the Niagara Falls Police Department gathered his belongings from the bridge and they found his hotel room key. They went to his hotel room and I'm told that they didn't, they knew his name and the only contact information that they found in the hotel room was the phone number to the Missouri State Highway Patrol. So they called the Highway Patrol. The Highway Patrol didn't give them any information. They just said, we found this for Myron Downey. We don't know why, but he jumped off of Niagara Falls today. And they said, okay. And they called me and they said, uh, you know, you need to call this investigator in, in Niagara Falls. And I called and identified myself. And the investigator said, your husband jumped off of Niagara Falls today. They didn't have a body yet, but it was very apparent that he had swam to his death. That's really tough. And that's really tough with it. That hasn't been long. No, 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 no. It was um, just maybe, I guess that's at this point, nine months ago is the time of that we're recording this. Right. Did you do anything for your mental health? What did, what happened after that? Well, the, the, the mental health part was very difficult at that time because it took almost two weeks to find his body. Hmm. So I couldn't even have, I mean, I knew my husband was dead, but I couldn't even say my husband's dead. At that right. time, it was still my he husband's didn't have that closure. Right. I didn't have it. And I, now I have assets tied up in a divorce, so I can't cash out bank accounts to pay bills. Not that he was bringing in an income anyway. I was already financially struggling and trying to, you know, figure out if I needed to pick up a second job. But I couldn't, you know, you can't claim life insurance. You can't plan a burial. You can't sell his car. You can't do anything. And I'm stressed out about getting a death certificate and closing that door and trying to answer questions. And every single day, you know, keeping my phone right next to my side, waiting for somebody to say, we found his body. For me, though, none of that was what was going through my mind. What was going through my mind was my husband's body is out somewhere. It's just out there. The the, the logistics of the the this and that's were hitting me as I'm trying to figure out, you know, or as I'm trying to pay a bill or I'm trying to, you know, I'm talking to my attorney about how can I free up my money now because I've been trying to, to protect it. But even then it wasn't occurring to me, you know, kind of what was happening. But when I would, when I would go to sleep at night and I would, I would dream about seeing him and I'd just be like, where are you? Even the time that he was in jail, I knew where he was, but now I don't even know where he's at. I know right. he's dead. I, I know he's dead. He couldn't have survived that fall. But the images in my mind of what was happening to him physically, I, you know, you watch documentaries and you hear particularly parents when their children are missing and they say, you know, I just kept picturing my child out in the cold and you're wondering, what are they talking about? I finally understood what they're talking about, you know, and just so, so finding his body really 
put that put that final tip on it for me. So I, as soon as we did, I, I contacted one of the nonprofits that Myron was always following. He he had followed a group called the um, Concerns of Police Survivors, and they work with families and law enforcement officers who have lost officers in the line of duty. Because he had so many line of duty deaths that, that haunted him, he wanted to go to some of their retreats. And they have them in rural Missouri, not far from where we live. So I reached out to them and learned about a group that they had actually just started in 2020 for survivors of law enforcement suicide. And it's called Survivors of Blue Suicide. I reached out and I said, look, here's the deal. He wasn't even a real law enforcement officer anymore. He was medically retired. And, you know, it, it, this is such a complicated case. But immediately the director of services said, you're one of us. Here's our, here's our meeting information. We do them via Zoom. Here's the, the next time that we're on. And I cried through the entire first meeting, which I remember doing in my first, my first 12-step meeting too when I went to get help for codependency. I cried through the whole meeting. And they, and I felt kind of awkward, you know, as I'm crying on Zoom. And I just kept hearing people say, it's okay, we did too. That's normal. You're one of us. So we meet, Survivors of Blue Suicide meets. We have, a, we have one big group meeting at least once a month. And then we break out into smaller groups. You know, spouses are in one group. Coworkers have their own group. Parents have their own group where they talk specifically about their own traumas in this. And they've been a game changer for me. I get a lot of strength from that group. I've met parents who have lost children. Well, my mother died a few years ago of cancer. And so I kind of con you know, connected with some of, uh, particularly the women in the group because I, I, you know, I have a great stepmom, but having a mom in those groups is really special to me. Other spouses, I sometimes feel grateful for a few things. I feel grateful first that I, you know, I said that suicide was, was this big cloud in our home and I felt like the other shoe was gonna drop one day. And, you know, the shoe dropped. I didn't ask why. I knew why. I didn't blame myself. I knew that this was building up and this was the, the result of PTSD and alcoholism. You know, alcohol made him make that decision. I know it did. And PTSD is what his alcoholism was trying to chase. So there's some things I'm grateful for. I don't have small children. And then there's other things. I, I'm like, well, I kind of, I, I would have given up those three years of torment Maybe it would have been better to be hit blindsided. But again, those are what ifs. And right. if, if I what if, I've adopted his sickness and I'm not going to adopt his sickness, I, I feel confident. Um, I feel confident that my husband wants me to continue doing the work that he couldn't do. But I also know that he doesn't blame anybody here for what he struggled with. This was a job-related illness that he didn't know how to treat. And I, and I know I know him well enough. And gosh, our friends have reassured me a million times over that if he could speak today from where he's at, he would, he would say two things. He would say, number one, take care of my people. And then he would say, you know, tell them to talk about it. The alcohol is not the solution. It's going to... Um, make things a whole lot worse because it's just going to cloud that judgment and it's just going to cloud that mind. And I can, I can look back to that November day when he was doing this to our house. He was so drunk that the hospital was a 0 0.40 blood alcohol level. I've looked at these numbers repeatedly on his medical records thinking I'm misreading something, but this is really how drunk he would get. The alcoholism only made it worse and lied to him and said, 
I'll make it better. Right. Now, I know you've also said, you know, he did have some of that issue with command staff where they didn't step in and help. But I also know in some of the conversations that we've had, you mentioned that his team has started to change that dynamic with mental health now. They have, you know, they've remained so close to us. They, gosh, even after, you know, the November incident, they came and they helped me clean up my house. And they've started to see things that they can see a pattern. They'll see somebody in their group that will say things that Myron used to say. And now instead of just blowing it off, I, I get told that, yeah, we sent, you know, a couple of guys over low key. They still, you know, the command staff still, I don't think is ready to deal with these things, but his coworkers have taken it upon themselves to go and respond immediately now, instead of just being like, oh, he said this and it was scary going and talking to this person and saying, hey, what do we need to do? I've been told by a few of them ind individually you know, I've recognized that I'm drinking too much and it scares me. So I've started working on that. I've had spouses that have told me, yeah, you know, I've started secretly. We're going to to um, these groups where we're dealing with their trauma. But then collectively as a unit, what I've seen is they really pulled together. And when they recognize, uh, you know, they had someone in their in their unit that was starting to starting to experience physical illness as a result of the job in the same way that Myron did. And instead of just saying, dude, it's fine, you know, you're close to retirement, like like they did with Myron. Like with Myron, they were like, oh, you know, trying to blow it off as a joke. I don't want to say a joke, but make it light. Oh, great. Look right. at that. You get paid to be off and on sick leave. Instead of treating it that way, they immediately, when this person had this had this health issue, a couple of, of the people I know, you know, very quietly, of course, went to their house and said, what can we do for you? What do you need from us? You know, I, you know, can, can we, and, and I was told there was, there was a night that they were with this person and this person had pulled out alcohol and they were like, nope, you're not going to do that. And they put it away. There's a, there's a recognition among his team of this is a problem and, and maybe our command staff isn't going to deal with it. So we're going to deal with it. It's a lot mm -hmm. for them to wear, but I'm so proud of them for at least taking the steps that they can take to Absolutely. help one another. And I think that's a very important message, you know, whether you're in Missouri, you're in Georgia, no matter where you are, it's that important message that we can look out for our brothers and sisters. Exactly. And just by looking out and saying, you know, what can I do to help? It exactly. doesn't have to be somebody from higher up that has to ask. And here in Georgia, we do have some state peer support teams available, which is something that we are very thankful for because I'm hoping that we're getting to the point where we're going to stop stigmatizing mental health because the trauma is real. It's very real in law enforcement and 911 and fire, all of the above. I keep going back to what Myron's psychiatrist had said in 2018. You feel this because you're a compassionate person. You chose mm -hmm. this job because you're a compassionate person. And what kind of person would you be if you saw the horrors of your job and you didn't have an emotional reaction? Right. I want command staff, I want, you know, HR departments, I want training departments to look at this and say, this is not because we have broken people. This is because we have people who are getting broken. They are, they care. This is because we have the right people who don't know how to deal with this in a healthy way. I don't want a firefighter or an EMT or a, a law enforcement officer to respond to my car accident and not be shaken. I don't want that person. 
I want the person who responds to my car accident and says, this is a person and I care and I don't know this person, but I care and I'm going to make sure that, that I can do everything I can to help. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we see that point of view enough. The, the reason that these men and women get hurt by the job is because they care about the job that they do. We need to honor that and destigmatize the impact of that trauma. I, you know, I think the army has started doing a good job of that and we could probably take some of those models and uh, and I know, uh, trust me, I have enough army uh, army people in my family <laughs> who go, "Well, I don't know if we do it that great." But the reality is they had started recognizing it a few years ago and they are working on this. And the psychiatrist that Myron had was a military psychiatrist who was who used to get called into traumatic incidences and say, "Help this person process what happened in a way that they can turn it around and accept the trauma without, you know, feeling the long-term impact. So that's the work that, that he had been done, doing in the military and took into his civilian life. I think we, we've got the right people out there. And I think they're afraid of being pulled off of the job because they'll be labeled as the wrong people. But I see it as totally opposite. They're the right people. We just owe them the right answers to problems that can't be avoided. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Before we wrap up, do you have any advice for spouses? Anything that you would like to say, you know, maybe somebody's going through this similar experience or they're just worried about their officer? What advice would you give? You know, it's a difficult road because we definitely want to protect our officers anonymity for many reasons, not just from command staff, but society itself can be very difficult just as a law enforcement family period, but very difficult when your officer's going through trauma. A couple of things, there's help out there. It is difficult to find it, but it is out there. Some of the places that I have found help were through Blue Help. I found help through, you know, of course, after the fact, survivors of blue suicide. But even though we say survivors of blue suicide, we have resources to help those who aren't at that level before they have to get there, right? So that Mm -hmm. they don't have to get there. Reach out to organizations like that, first and foremost. Second, I know that your peers don't talk about this a lot, and we're afraid to talk about it with one another. But I know part of what I'm doing right now is trying to build networks where we have a safe place to talk about it. And then, you know, finally, there are codependency programs. You might not think that you're a codependent, but if you are living with an alcoholic, you are. It is just inherent. It is a part of the disease. And I found a lot of help through those programs because I could go and anonymously share my struggles with people who understood my struggles and learn how to focus on myself. Caregiver burnout is so real. It's so real and we experience it. And we experience guilt when we try to take care of ourselves. But you cannot help someone else. And you know, it's ironic that I had used drowning as the as the example and now my husband has drowned to death. But you know, you, you can't help somebody who's drowning if you're drowning as well. I think the other, you know, the other example is the, the airline motto of put on your own oxygen mask before you put on someone else's. If you're suffocating, you can't help someone else breathe. So as a spouse, the only way that I had maintained any level of sanity was doing the things that I needed to do to step back and remember I had to be healthy. I didn't get a lot of sleep and it was hard. I wish I would have had peer support groups. We're working on that. Peer support groups for people who are currently living through it. We're working on that for sure. 
reach out to those agencies and you don't you don't have to be someone who has lost your officer to get help from those groups one of the things that we try to do is help people so that they don't have to get to that point absolutely well deb i just want to say thank you so much i am so very sorry for your loss but like you said myron absolutely would want you to continue sharing his story and it's a very strong story because you also share your personal experiences and just by sharing i know that you'll help you'll help more than one person but we always say if we help one person that made a complete difference Absolutely. but i know that your your story will reach more than one so i just truly thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us on our podcast today thank you so much it's been an honor Thanks for listening to Gypstick Between the Lines. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, email us at learn at gpstc.org.